edition of our show, Her Story on the Rocks. Typically, Katie and I sit around and drink cocktails late into the night and talk about famous women from history. But sometimes we like to talk to women who are writing about history. We have a very special guest here with us today, Catherine Pangonis. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Oh, we're so excited. So Catherine is a historian specializing in the medieval world of the Mediterranean and the Middle East. Is that right? That is right indeed. Yeah. And she holds degrees in literature and history and is here to talk about what I think is your first book, Queens of Jerusalem, The Women Who Dared to Rule. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, great. Thanks for the introduction. Um, so yeah, exactly that. I mean, I did English and history at university, English undergrad history for my postgrad. And then I saw, you know, I was thinking about how to make a career out of it. And I'd focused on, I'd studied crusader chronicles and crusader historiography during my master's and something I'd just come across both then. And when I was at school, actually, was that, you know, during this period, women are doing amazing things but very few of the books that are written about the crusades really give the women their due or spend enough time talking about the achievements of women and indeed a lot of them tend to gloss over the deeds of women and so I thought this was the time to rectify that so that's where the idea for the book came from and yeah and the queens of Jerusalem the woman who dared to rule is the product the end result so yeah it's so amazing. I, I'm really excited. It's a nice little addition to my bookshelf. As you can see behind me, I have like color-coded books. So it's in the green section now over here. <laughs> it's really lovely. So typically we um, make a cocktail for every woman and for every book. So we made a cocktail for Queens of Jerusalem for our listeners to get a little bit of the behind the scenes. It's like three o'clock in the afternoon for me and like eight o'clock for Catherine. So I'm not drinking quite yet. I will be in a little while, but I looked up a lot of cocktails from that region of the world to try to put something together. So first I made, I made chamomile symbol syrup, which was pretty easy to make. You just take uh, chamomile tea and then uh, sugar and water. And then I mixed it with ouzo and and fresh mint and seltzer and pink grapefruit juice and it's just like a really light refreshing like spritzer but also very herbal tasting sounds delicious I'm gonna yeah. make myself one of those later <laughs> yeah I'll have to I'll send you the whole recipe and we'll put out a picture of it with your book um so let's jump in. Can we talk about setting the scene for your book? What is life like for women during this time period? Yeah, well, I'm sure your readers know that women in the medieval period are kind of oppressed. Um, women are generally treated by as uh, generally treated as second class citizens by medieval society. Um, there are, in, you know, depending on the country or you know the area, there are different rules regarding land ownership. There are different rules regarding the amount of choice they have in over who they marry, if they marry at all. Um, and the Kingdom of Jerusalem, which is where my book is set, if you like, is the region my book focuses on, is no different to that. So it's very much, it's the Crusader states of Outremer. So these are the state, the, this is the territory conquered by the First Crusade. So the Knights of the First Crusade came out from Europe and conquered territory in the Middle East and made the Crusader states. They forged these new territories, principalities, kingdoms, counties, etc. in this region. And they imported m most of the medieval European attitudes towards women to these countries. Um, however, what's different in, in this region to in medieval Europe 
is that the intense instability of the region, the fact that there's enemies on all sides, these these territories are fairly new, like, you know, depending on when you are in the period, the Kingdom of Jerusalem is only 10 years, 20 years, 30 years old. It's not an established kingdom like the Kingdom of France. This means there's increased flexibility within the code of how society is governed. And this creates more opportunities for women to take power. So women are still second class citizens. If you look at the law codes, there's this very important meeting called the Council of Nablus, which came up with all these rules about how women would be treated. And again, women caught in adultery are going to have their noses chopped off. Um, you know, if a woman uh, if a woman is widowed, she is she has to remarry, but she can choose from three candidates. So there's a little bit of choice, but not much. But even so, despite this, women do rise and become very powerful they become queens regnants they they rule as regents for men they command in sieges they take a very active role in the politics and the reason they're able to do more of this is that the men are dying left right and center and there aren't necessarily replacements so it's it's an it's an yeah i mean it's still it's a very difficult place to be a woman you're in constant danger you're still a second class citizen in many respects but there are chances and opportunities springing up where a woman might be able to prove herself and claim some real agency so it's exciting yeah, it, it's incredible that your like your book and your research um, is so rich because I think this is um, an area of the world and a time period that people are interested in, but they feel very out of touch with. Mm. Yeah, I think. That? Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, to a degree. I mean, it's not it's not so prominent on you know curriculums over here in England for sure. I don't know about how how it is in the states. Yeah, and I think, you know, com- you know, com- countries' curriculums tend to focus on issues that are important to their own country's history and also to present day politics. Um, I also think that when people do study the Crusades on curriculums, a mistake is often made, which is they, they really just look at the Crusades, the military ventures from Europe, which, you know, amounted to ethnic cleansing and, and you know, and it was genocide and it was, you know, hugely brutal. And there's a danger of glamorizing that and getting caught up with the adventure element of it all. But what I think is much more interesting is looking at the looking at the kingdoms that were forged in between the Crusades. So, you know, daily, you know, because after the first crusade captured Jerusalem, they, you know, that was run as a territory for nearly for over 100 years, you know, not quite over 100 years, just under 100 years. And then the other states around it, some of them lasted longer. And in those kingdoms, in those crusader states, you had this amazing mi- mixing of cultures. And yeah, so you had, you know, you had native Christians, so sort of Armenian and Syrian Christians living alongside these settling, these settlers from Europe, but then also conducting diplomacy and trade with obviously native Muslim inhabitants and also there's a Jewish population. So it's a real ethnic mixing pot and all the, and, you know, the three great Abrahamic religions are all very present at this time in this region. So I think that's much more interesting and studying that and those cultural dynamics is much more relevant to, you know, to the world we live in today than just looking at the, the military ventures of knights, you know, knights on horseback going over from Europe to conquer lands. I mean, yeah, so I think where we do look at the Crusades, we don't necessarily look at the most important bit, but it's such a rich area of study. So, yeah, I think it does deserve further attention, particularly the lives of the women. Yeah, <laughs> and I, th- I think you're absolutely right. Like when we talk about the Crusades, we're talking about the Crusaders, right? Like not the people um, that are living in that region of the world. Um, and speaking of the women, can you tell us some of the women that this story focuses on? I know you go through like a multi-generational like queens and warrior princesses, but who are like some of your favorites and some of your highlights? 
Yeah, so I mean, the, 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 the central figure of my book is Queen Melisande of Jerusalem, who's, you know, she's a she's definitely a poster girl for medieval girl power she take she takes control in the middle east and has a huge impact so she's a woman who she's she's born she's born in the middle east to an armenian mother and a, a frankish father so she's sort of half european half native eastern sort of thing middle eastern armenian um which gives her the sympathies of both native christians and the settler population so that puts her in a good position her father arranges a, a marriage for her with a man much older than her, which doesn't go very well at first. Um, and then her father on his deathbed, instead of leaving power to just her husband, he leaves power jointly to her husband, her and their son, which is a real curveball for the husband who thinks he's just going to become king of Jerusalem on his own. But instead, he has to share power with Melisande. And this leads to huge conflicts within the court. But Melisande ultimately comes out on top or, you know, or at least as an equal partner. So we see her ruling like very actively while her husband's still alive. And then following her husband's death, she rules as regent for her son. But where it's really interesting is that when her son comes of age, Melisande refuses to cede power to him and she stays running the show for a very long time. And her son really struggles to get her off the throne and to take the power for himself because she's such a popular monarch and she has all she has a lot of loyalty from many different groups in the kingdoms, not least the Patriarch of Jerusalem. So this enables her to hold on to power. And she sets an example for queenship for women in the 12th century, which we can see reflected in parallel in Araka of Spain and in Matilda in England. And then later, you know, in Eleanor of Aquitaine and other important female women across Europe. So she's, you know, she's very important and she achieves a lot of personal power. Um, but, you know, she's she's not necessarily the most fun. I mean, lots of the other women they're just a lot of them are less successful, but more gutsy in some ways. So Melisande's sister Alice, you know, she's she's a bit of a disaster in that she rebels three times and tries to take control of the Principality of Antioch. And every time it's it's a failure. And the last one is the worst because, you know, she's managed to close the gates of the city. She's you know, she's she thinks she might just be able to do it to hold the city. And then a man shows up at the gates and Art says, and he's a nobleman from France. And he says, if you let me in, I'll marry you and we can rule the city together. And she's probably thinking, OK, not ideal, but potentially could work, you know, a powerful alliance, that sort of thing. And then when she invites him in and, she, um, and she's getting ready for their wedding, he just he kidnaps her eight year old daughter and marries her instead, which pushes her out of the line of succession because now her daughter is married the power transfers to the daughter and the new husband. So it's just a complete shocker. So that's a great story. Um, but what I was most excited to discover really was when I started working with the sources for this period, I discovered that it wasn't just Christian queens and Christian women in the, in the crusader state sphere who are wielding power in this period and region. And just like while at the Christian courts of Jerusalem, women, uh, the instability was allowing women to take on more power. The same was true in the Islamic courts. So one of the most interesting women I discovered was an Islamic woman called Zamarud of Damascus. Her name means, if I'm pronouncing it a bit better, Zamarud, and it means emerald um, in Arabic. And she is the wife, she's the widow of a ruler of Damascus, and then the mother of the next ruler. And then her son like, is clearly paranoid and delusional. And so the nobles of the court come and ask the Murad to fix the problem. And she actually arranges the assassination of her own son, arranges for the, another son to become king, and then marries one of their biggest adversaries, the Lord, like Zengi, the Atabeg, but marries, marries Zengi, their greatest rival as well. And so really cements an, an alliance between these two rival factions. So she's an incredibly important woman. And she has a Wikipedia page now, but when I was writing the book, she didn't even have a Wikipedia page, so completely overlooked. 
Um, so yeah, discovering her was wonderful. And then also, um, the, you know, the greatest Islamic hero of the age is Saladin. Most people have heard of him. His wife was also an educated woman and who had a very interesting life and career. Unfortunately, there's not too much written about her, but what there is, we can see that she's clearly very impressive and very, very interconnected within the, the different Islamic dynasties and is an important figure. And so actually discovering these glimpses of power of, of women's power in the Islamic courts was also really interesting because much as you don't expect in the in the Christian courts, you expect even less in the Islamic ones. So that was that was particularly interesting. Was it uh, difficult navigating such um, an area with such a rich religious history? Um, you, you had previously mentioned, you know, this area has the three major Abrahamic religions. Like, was that a hard thing to navigate or did it actually spell out much easier, like what to expect from certain groups of people? Um, I think, you know, it wasn't it, it wasn't difficult per se. I mean, I think the the roadblock is that you're dealing with sources in a lot of languages. So I think, you know, from from a from a practical standpoint, it's, you know, for a lot of medieval history, having French or German and Latin is enough. But whereas in the Middle East, you really, you know, you, either you need to have a good command of sort of Syriac, Armenian and Arabic or to have some friendly translators on call. Um, so that's that's the barrier of dealing with such with such cultural diversity is the the breadth of source material. Um, beyond that, it just I think it just makes it very interesting. Like I said, I think the, the the reason I'm drawn to this region, the reason the reason I'm drawn to this region in the medieval period, is because it is this really diverse. You know, these these cities in the Middle East, so Antioch, Damascus, Cairo, Jerusalem, they do represent these amazing cultural hubs where people. You know, you had in, in Jerusalem we have evidence of pilgrims and visitors from India and Iceland which you just, you know, you don't get in medieval years. It's fascinating. So um, so I think they just added a layer of richness and complexity to it that was very rewarding um, once you got past the language barriers, of course. Right. <laughs> That's right. I'm like, we're, um, if anybody in the United States can handle two languages, we're lucky. So we always look and we're like so impressed when there's, especially like uh, in Europe, we're looking and the Middle East, we're like, wow, so many people know more than one language. It's pretty impressive. I know I'm living in Lebanon at the moment and you know the fact that so many people can just are fluent in English Arabic and French and just can just switch in and out of these like it's, it's mind-boggling to me it's very impressive yeah so much so um in terms of some of these major cities and major hubs that you you're talking about Jerusalem Jerusalem Cairo Damascus are there mm -hmm. like any lasting contributions that were left by women that weren't necessarily attributed to them at the time like political or otherwise I mean it's really it's hard it's hard to say you sort of answer your own questions that you know if the if the achievements aren't attributed to them at the time we don't know what they are now sort of thing so I mean there are lasting contributions made by women um a big you know one of the the main achievements of Merson's reign is she was a huge patron of architecture and the arts and so you know uh the the, the you know the holy sepulchre the the great you know the most important church in christianity would not look the way it does today without Melison's contribution and that's not spelled out anywhere specifically but um it's not sort of engraved in the wall or anything but we know from the sources that this happened during her reign and when she was you know running affairs at home so we can safely assume it's to do with her we also have textual records of her architectural patronage so she 
she com- you know she commissioned the construction of the abbey of bethany which is a very important religious house during the crusader period and she also you know that yeah jerusalem the old city of jerusalem the marketplace a large section of it was built by melisons and the the street that she built the street of malquisinat bad cooking um which was a, a meant to cater you know it's like a fast food outlet for pilgrims but you know slightly more sophisticated um you know that that was done by her and also her family and the women in her family were also patrons of the church of saint anne in jerusalem which is my favorite church in jerusalem and is you know as is, is, belongs to france actually um so no you do you do have the architectural contributions um but you know more than that we if it wasn't written down at the time and attributed to women we don't have the we don't have the technology the skills the the methods to uncover unattributed contributions made by women really we can read between the lines of the sources we can do our best to guess you know we can look at you know one of the best art objects surviving from the crusader period we believe belong to melisande um so there are things like this but yeah beyond that beyond that it's hard to say unless it was written down at the time right how was your um relationship with these women while you were writing a lot of times you know you work for years digging into sources and doing research and you know one day you might be like yes get it girl and the next day you're like oh why did you do that did you have any (laughs) moments where you were like all for or all against anybody that you were writing about yeah no I was never all for I mean the only the problem is is I'm as susceptible as the next person to the biases of history so you know Queen Sibylla of Jerusalem she's the final woman I write about and her mother Agnes of Courtney I think that was that was the most of a journey that was the biggest journey for me in terms of a relationship with the woman I was writing about because the sources hate them like most of the sources have been written by men and they've all sort of they've they've followed they've followed what the man before has written sort of thing so you know at the you know there are a lot of very negative sources about Sibylla from the medieval period and then that's that's parroted and reflected in modern histories as well and so you know I it's very easy a lot of people blame Sibylla and Sibylla's weakness for the collapse of the kingdom of Jerusalem and you know sort of you know hardcore crusades fans as a result really don't like her but then you know you have to ask the question well how bad was it that the crusader kingdom fell I mean it was an invasive force but you know that's not the point but it's sort of like for me I really had to peel back layers of misogyny in the chronicles to really try and get a real image of who Sibylla might have been and you know in my book I do talk about okay yes Sibylla made some very bad decisions but what we have to remember is that when she was making these she'd probably you know lost at least four she'd lost five children you know this is a woman who's in her 20s um and has just had the most difficult life and so you know to judge her by you know to 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 just be disparaging and and she's also ruling at a time where the the political tensions and the threats to Jerusalem are reaching boiling point. You know, she's also a woman who's ruling at a time when the kingdom is at its most fragile, it's literally fracturing about her. So you have to, you know, you do have to, you know, peel this back if you're trying to get a sense of the character. Um, And I ended up actually, you know, while not necessarily admiring Sibylla, you know, certainly wouldn't be passing judgment on her sort of thing, because we don't know that her grandmother Melisande would have done better in the same circumstances. You know, they're, they're ruling at very different times. And it's very hard to compare them and say one woman is stronger or more intelligent than another. You just, because they're, they're ruling in completely different circumstances and with completely different levels of support around them. So it's difficult to say. 
Um, and also the, the big thing that you have to deal with when dealing with medieval chronicles writing about women is just the misogyny in the chronicles, you know, and it's it's not misogyny in the modern sense of the word, but it's just the language you used to talk about women is just, it would, it would not fly today. It's so gendered. It's so sexist. Um, yeah. You really have to, you really have to peel all of that back to get at the real characters. Yeah. So you said that when you started um, getting ready to put this book down on paper, it was at first like, okay, um, I'm noticing there's a gap here, like in history. Did did you wake up one day and were like, okay, there's a gap, I'm going to do it? Or did you grapple with it for a while? Like maybe somebody else will write it. Yeah, sort of thing. So when I was at, when I first did the Crusades when I was at school and the curriculum mentions Queen Melisande and Alice of Antioch, but then doesn't delve into them at all. And there was certainly no, no chance to just sort of write an exam or major paper on them. Um, but, you know, when I was doing that, I was 17. I didn't think a lot more about it. I was like, oh, just, that's a bit strange. But then when I finished my master's and I looked again and there was still no accessible book written about these people, I thought, well, I am now in a position to do something about that. So that and so then it was then it was quite, quite quick, really. And I mentioned the idea to a publisher and they were like, yes, please. And that was that was very gratifying and very encouraging because I think, you know, the Crusades is a hyperactive field of study. People publish books about the Crusades all the time. but I, I, I'm still surprised, but this is the first book that really focuses on the women. Um, they probably publish a new book every year on the Crusades, you know, some elements on the, you know, Albigensian Crusade, Templars, um, the First Crusade, the Third Crusade, Richard the Lionheart, Saladin. There's all this stuff being written all the time. And none of these books have looked at the women. So, yeah. That's pretty, it's pretty neat to like be a, a kind of pioneer in this area of history. I hope so. Um, I think, but women are getting, you know, I've got to say in the academic sphere, the deeds of women in the Crusader States are getting more attention. So that's, that's a good thing. Um, And it's beginning to translate to the the sort of um, more popular writing sphere as well, which is good. Since the Me Too movement, there is a much greater emphasis on amplifying the voices of women um, across many different cultural and political spheres. So I think this is part of that greater trend and it's, it's great to be a part of that. Yeah. Yeah, that is amazing. Did you did you have to travel anywhere while you were doing your research? Like you mentioned a few churches um, and that you're currently living in Lebanon. Were you like out and about? Yeah, extensively. I mean, actually pretty much all the time. Um, that was the great joy of writing the book was that, you know, I thought there's so a part of it was it was a great opportunity. I wanted to travel. But beyond that, you talk about having a relationship with the women. So little is written about them. But the castles that they lived in, they were born in, those still exist. You know, the streets that Melisande walked down still exist in Jerusalem. You know, the convent that one of the queens was confined, you know, was confined to is still stands. Um, the castle in Edessa, modern Shaniurfa in Turkey, is still is still there. And so, you know, you're so distant from these women in time. But if you travel to the places they lived, you don't have to be distant in space. And that can feel that can give you a really great connection. And, you know, the landscape hasn't changed, you know, so you can look out at the same views that they would have seen um, in the same climate. And and as we were talking about, you know, Jerusalem is still an intensely religious and intensely contested city. And if you go to Jerusalem today, you still have, you know, you have the Armenian sector with, you know, a very proud Armenian community um, who are still praying and worshipping in a church that was endowed by Melisande. Um, and you still you still have religious tensions between the different religious groups there, and you still have this amazing blend of cultures in the streets and all these different languages being spoken. So it can it can the travel was really vital to 
yeah to, to the research and to getting a, a feel for these people and and feeding my passion for the project so yeah and I, I traveled I was in I spent several months in Jerusalem I spent several months and traveling around Israel and Palestine I spent several months in Lebanon fell in love with the country it's why I'm there now um a time in Turkey as well yeah and also Jordan to see the sort of the out so all over the Middle East really and and then also uh, visited you know to use the find the right textual sources I was visiting the libraries in Paris as well as London so it was it was a, a real journey to do this book but it was was brilliant I loved every minute of it yeah that sounds so fascinating for us in the states if ever we're doing any research right things are unless it's Native American history or First Nation people history it doesn't go back more than you know 300 years so it's just such a different vibe when you're you know traveling around the Middle East and Paris and like some cities that have been there for centuries it's amazing yeah and it's it's really it actually really inspired the book I'm writing now because my new project is called it's called Storied Cities the Forgotten Capitals of the Mediterranean and it's a book about these cities so what happened uh, and I'm looking at cities like Antioch which were hugely famous in antiquity in the medieval period but which no one knows very much about now or you know and how they declined and so yeah visiting these places really was really inspiring um so much so that it caused my next book to happen so yeah that's so cool so is there anything like when people sit down to read this like a big takeaway that you're like after they read or while they're reading this is what I want them to feel I want them to, so while they're reading it, I want them to feel excited because this is an amazing story. Like the, the amount of, the amount of, you know, politics and drama and romance and scandal, you know, one of the, when you ask me about favorite episodes and things, you know, there's a case where a queen of Jerusalem elopes with her uncle and they, you know, they flee to Muslim territory to have this, this bizarre incestuous, but very, very passionate and devoted relationship. So I thought, and that was, you know, can you imagine it? The queen of the former queen of Jerusalem escaping to live at the Muslim court in Damascus. Like it's just it, it's, it doesn't compute. It's so it's so out there. So no, I want people to be excited when they read it um, and to be, you know, enthralled in the narrative and just be amazed by what these women were doing. But in terms of a takeaway, I think the most important thing is to realize that conventionally held images of women in the Middle Ages are just rubbish like the idea that the majority of women were just quiet and meek and sitting in towers waiting to be rescued and wearing very impractical clothing and pointy hats and not doing very much it's just like it's it's just not true um and that's you know a lot of people think you know talk a lot about the traditional roles of women but so i think very important for sort of feminism today um is realizing that actually women have been in leadership positions for centuries this isn't just a product since the second world war of the 21st century this this is not a new fad you know women have been leading making important decisions making military decisions you know taking up all these different these different roles and responsibilities for centuries um and that that that's important to understanding yeah the, the women's history and it's very important to understand to to carving out a more equal society today, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for like broadening the scope on that. Every single time we get a new book or talk to a new person, it's so incredible that we, we as a collective, right. Society are saying, Hey, this has been going on for a long time. Let's take a look at it. Mm -hmm. Well, no, thank you. And thank you for, for reading and for bringing it to a wider audience. It's really important. Yeah.
So can you tell our listeners where they can find you, where they can get a copy of this book, where they can find your next book when it comes out? Yeah, um, so it launches in the States today. So that's and that's the 1st of February. I don't know when you're released, but mm-hmm. today. And yeah, you can get it, I think, all the major bookstores, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, hopefully your local bookstore too, I'm not sure. Um, and yeah, I have a website. It's just katherinepangonis.com and you can find updates and reviews and all that sort of thing there. Second book's a while away. I have to hand it in in two months' time if I'm good and meet my deadline, which I might not be. So and so hopefully we'll see it towards the end of the year or the beginning of next, but it's not sure yet. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This should be coming out next week. So everybody, the book will be readily available by then. So thank you so much for taking the time late at night where you are to talk to us today and to bring these amazing women to our attention. Thank you so much for having me. It's been wonderful. listening to her story on the rocks we are independently produced by 1986 entertainment and proudly recorded in baltimore maryland if there's a woman in history you would like us to cover you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com you can also message us on twitter or instagram we post all of our cocktail recipes on tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us see you next week bye